This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, the podcast that explores the future of the economy with Britain's leading entrepreneurs, with me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor to the Prime Minister on business, technology and entrepreneurship. One of the most important skills that you develop working for a Prime Minister is time management. Your time is important, but the Prime Minister's time is the most valuable currency within the government. How much face time you receive with the PM and how much time you can carve out for business leaders, which business leaders and why, becomes how you are judged internally and externally. A great example of this each year would be Davos, where meetings with Presidents Trump and Macron were balanced with meeting as many business leaders as possible. Now, even the most organised of meetings and expertly chaired ones are difficult to keep under 15 minutes. I am sure we have all found this in a Zoom world. Therefore, we would instigate meetings that were termed brush buys. This is where a meeting would be scheduled for a five to seven minute period and would generally take place in a corridor where the two would brush by each other. Or we could have what was termed a substantial brush by and that would last seven to ten minutes. Deciding how long people would get would always be one of the biggest challenges. The Prime Minister's formidable head of ops would hold up fingers behind the business leader's head, indicating how long we had left. Perhaps not realising at times quite how difficult these people were to hurry along with their remarks. It's fair to say I have a different pace of life now, as the only person who gives me time indications is my 20-month-old daughter, who points at my watch, shouting, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Either that, or she wants to get on social media already. But away from the glamour of meeting the world's business leaders at Davos, one of the most important aspects of my job was briefing the PM on the way that our economy was changing right across the UK and highlighting some of the companies that were leading that charge. After all, it is private enterprise which spurs this changing nature of our economy. Government can help, but it is those that are the initial entrepreneurs that are the innovation trigger that take the risk to set out their business and grow an idea and employ people, which will be the main reason our economy changes. It has been a continuous theme on this show such as Anne Bowden, the founder of Starling Bank, setting up hubs in Southampton and Cardiff, Nigel Toon, the founder of the tech unicorn Graphcore, setting up his base in Bristol. When we think of manufacturing, it can conjure up images of industrial plants, burning furnaces, and thousands of workers clocking in and out. The UK does not quite have as much of this as it used to. However, there is a renaissance taking place in Britain, focusing on high-end, precision manufacturing. Which brings us to our guest today, Giles English, who co-founded the British watchmaking company Bremont with his brother Nick in 2002. In the 1800s, over half the world's timepieces were made in Britain, but this steadily declined over the last couple of centuries, with the now famous Swiss manufacturing taking centre stage, developing a niche alongside high finance and chocolates. However, Bremont is reinvigorating British watchmaking 
bringing this historical skill set back to the fore of British manufacturing. Bremen have recently opened their new state-of-the-art technology centre called The Wing, a 35,000 square foot manufacturing centre enabling the full machining and fabrication of Bremen's watches right here in the United Kingdom. Located in Henley-on-Thames in Oxfordshire, the centre will create highly skilled jobs and spur the resurgence in British watchmaking that the brothers kick-started two decades ago. It's a terrific example of how the UK economy is adapting in the 21st century. Our partner for the second series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, Octopus Group, is calling on the government to create an army of 100,000 entrepreneurs. They are proposing a national springboard programme designed to provide budding entrepreneurs with the financial support and access to skills that they need in order to start their own companies. 80% of people who are interested in starting a company said they wouldn't be able to take that leap because they lack the savings to pay their rent or mortgage for the first few months. The impact of the pandemic will sadly leave many further short of funding. However, the government can empower people through a springboard programme, providing a route for economic regeneration. It is important that we democratise the process of setting up a company so that it isn't just something that is accessible to those fortunate enough to have significant savings. We need anyone in the country, no matter what their background is, to have the opportunity to become an entrepreneur. If you want to know more, it is worth checking out the episode with Chris Hewlett, where he talks about the internal springboard programme they have at Octopus and how that is where some of their best ideas come from. Giles, welcome to the show. We're asking in the third series what your journey into the world of work was like. What was your work experience and what was your first paid job? Well, Jim, thank you for getting me on, on the show. My first work job, so I trained as an engineer and I always wanted to be a naval architect. So I, I wanted to go design boats and finishing my course in Southampton University. And obviously the city came to its milk round and it just, you know, the starting salary to go into the city rather than to a, a small little engineering business was far too tempting. So I went to work for a, a company called Williams Debro back then in corporate finance and quickly realized I was not built for the city, but learned a hell of a lot. I did some about three years in corporate finance, learned a lot and then left. But yeah, that was my first foray in, into work. And I think you quickly realize whether that's going to be a lifelong ambition or not. And what do you think you learn in corporate finance in those three years? Because I think it's quite a common story. You know, people graduate they get not the first job that comes along, but they don't have a lot of time necessarily to explore. You just want to get on with your career. And I think you get lots of people, you know, free to even up to eight years, 10 years in. But what do you think you learned from those initial few years at Williams Debro? I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur from literally from a one-year-old. Growing up, that was my interest. In, so I always felt I was going to end up there. How I got there and what I was going to do, I had no idea. And, and I think going into the city, it's a bit like when you go to university, you can't really write an essay until you come out of university and suddenly you realize how bad you were when you first joined. The experience you get, or I got, so I went to did all my accounting exams, some legal exams, the work ethos of being in that, you know, all nighters. And so it sort of, position me well to go and sort of have the basics, basic understanding to go and start my own business. But 
it was hard. And, and actually, I probably would have made far more money staying in the city than rather ever leaving. Pretty quickly, I, I just couldn't envisage myself being there forevermore. And, and I love the entrepreneurial nature of being out of the city than rather being in it. But I think having a core understanding of basics, you come out and you're sort of slightly arrogant as this young man and working in another business, whatever it is, you learn processes, you learn systems, and it, it's a real education. Yeah. And all the, I think there's so much you learn in those first couple of years of a working environment that you just don't appreciate that you are at the time through osmosis about client relationships and, and all that side and having superiors. I think it's really interesting in that regard. But you and your brother founded Bremont in 2002 after that career in the city. And I was just really curious to know what is seen as a traditional Swiss industry in watchmaking founded by two Englishmen, ends up with a French name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is quite random, isn't it? So I grew up with this amazing father, PhD, aeronautical engineer, brain the size of a house, who had this talent for building stuff, whether it was a, you know, built, he's built planes, we still fly, he built a sailing boat we went and lived on. But he had this sort of passion for watches and clocks. And we knew of this amazing history of British watchmaking. At the time, there were 750 Swiss watch companies, but no British watch company. When we launched, you know, my surname's English. We couldn't put English on a watch. And I could have gone and bought one of the old brands, the Mudge, Tompion, Graham, or Graham, but a Harrison, one of those sorts of brands. But we just felt that we'd be slightly living a lie. How would I end up working with a Rolls Royce or a Jaguar cars if I was pretending I was this watchmaker from 300 years ago? And, and that is probably 90% of the current Swiss watch brands were resurrected and their histories were sort of recreated. My father died in a plane crash, and that was a sort of the big inspiration for Nick and I to go and do something by ourselves. And about three years after that, we were flying down through France with our early watches at that point had we had no name or anything so and we landed got in some terrible weather we had to force land in a french farmer's pea field and this old biplane if you do that in the uk or the us you give the farmer a bottle of whiskey and you say sorry in france they impound your aircraft they make you take the wings off ship it to an airfield so it's a disaster and we stayed with this old man he said look put your plane in my hay barn and stay until the weather's better and we did stay in a couple of days and, and he was in you know, his late 70s my father died when he was 49 we just thought, actually, if our dad had lived till his late 70s, he would have been like this old boy who was sort of, you know, loved his old motorbikes and tractors and carriage clocks. And his name was Antoine Bremont. And we left and we thought, Bremont, it's a nice sounding name. That'd actually work on a watch. And we called him up and said, look, we're not going to associate this you in any way, shape or form. This is just, this is a new brand we're creating. But, you know, do you mind if we use the name Bremont? And he went, ah, crazy Englishman. But yeah, <laughs> that, that's where the name came from. But yeah, not, not very English sounding, I agree. Yeah, one of the, the running themes on this show with entrepreneurs coming on is solving a problem. And I guess that creating a watch company isn't so much sort of solving a problem, but the inspiration and the innovation trigger behind it was that, you know, the passing of your father, because that must have been a huge personal moment in your quite early formative years. I think that was a big moment where 
you think, sod it, I could be dead tomorrow. I'm really going to go and do something, which everyone says we're totally crazy in doing. But actually, you know, if it fails, it doesn't matter because we're still alive type thing. And Nick, who was in the plane crash with dad, he'd, you know, he'd been in intensive care for many months, break over 30 bones, he's properly smashed up. And it was our sort of medicine, our tonic. The challenge you had in a watch company, you know, there's possibly up to 300 components in a watch. You're machining to about five microns. The human hair is about 60 microns. We're just talking cogs and gears here. That watch will last hundreds of years if it's made well. Yes, you have to service it, but it's beautifully made piece of kit. And you can't just create one of these. So we knew we had to go to Switzerland. We thought it'd take a couple of years. Five years later, we hadn't sold a single watch. We were still prototyping and building. And it was just became this sort of massive journey to be able to launch and get those made. And so first three years after launch, we were making them in Switzerland. But the whole idea was to bring that skill set back to the UK. And it was about building British watchmaking, being different in that whole market. Few people realize Rolex was founded in Clerkenwell. The, the world sets its time back when it's meantime. There's such an amazing history of British watchmaking that had sort of disappeared. But ultimately, we're an engineering company. That's the course to kill. But people don't buy a luxury watch if they haven't read about you, seen you, all the marketing side of it. And obviously, we, we are a retailer as well. We own our own stores. So yeah, it has its challenges. During those five years when you didn't sell a watch at the beginning, there must have been some moments of assessing whether this was the right thing. Do you think if you were starting Bremont today, because the entrepreneurship landscape has changed so much in 20 years, do you think it would have been a side project or so on? I mean, obviously, you made a real decision to go all in on it, which is incredibly brave. But I just wonder on reflection now, if you would have done it slightly differently? In some ways, it's almost an impossible question to answer. So I apologise for asking it like that. But I just think it is something that we've seen through the pandemic, people have taken on side projects and hustles and that side of things and seeing if they can get things happening like that. And then maybe they take it up full time. So you you can almost hedge the risk a bit more. Do you think you would have done that in the modern age? Yeah, I think we probably would have. I think nowadays you can launch a brand by just putting it on Instagram and putting some bit of marketing behind it. We didn't have any of that back then. I think you had all the supply chains, Alibaba, that you could go and if you wanted something made in China or do you get all the databases in Switzerland to get stuff done? I think it's definitely easier. But I think now the challenge you've got that we didn't have is that the world is a lot more noisy. There's a lot more Kickstarter, smaller brands. So you get lost in that noise if you're not careful. So there's some challenges, I think, with brand building now that we didn't have back then. It was an old school form of building a brand. But yeah, I think there were many times that we thought, what are we doing? And we quoted this several times before, but we have, and it's been developed over the years, this three times rule in our business. Everything you want to do takes three times longer. It always costs three times more. And it's three times more effort than you ever think it's going to be. And my view is that a lot of entrepreneurs give up before they've gone through that three times role. And they either run on money or effort or energy. And it's just really hard work. I don't think I would recommend many people being entrepreneurs, actually, because it's hard. 
you know, it's much easier to go and work for someone else and probably have less stress. That's part of that three times rule. Do you really, really want it? And then then you can make it work. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's, um, yeah, see it in the podcast space quite a lot, actually. I read this week that only, I think it's 8% of podcasts make it through to their first year. Anyway, we're, we're, at, we're at nine months, so I've got three more months to go. Well, oh, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Well, that's it, because everyone will give up, and I'm not quite getting that approach, and I thought it was going to be easier. But that's part of the three times rule. Are you going to fight through that three times? Do you really believe in it? Exactly. And so looking to the future, you've been running the business for 20 years. You have built this new facility in Henley-on-Thames, which is called The Wing. It's 35,000 square foot space. And I see it's got lots of amazing innovations in terms of like a living roof and so on. I would love to hear the background of how you decided to do it, but also your future growth plans. Because I think I'm right in saying at the moment you produce 8,000 watches, but you have expansion plans beyond that for the next few years. I think where we came from on all of that is how do we build in the UK and grow that manufacturing base. And if anyone of you listeners have been involved in manufacturing and manufacturing in the UK, it's ridiculously complicated business because you need you need the skill set, you need the um, talents, you need the investment to get that working. And to build a watch, there are so many different levels. Do you want to specialize in just the assembly? Do you want to make cases? Do you want to make dials? Do you want to make movement parts? And no one does it all themselves because there's so many different skill sets and investment in machinery. But we hung our hat on this British watchmaking message all those years ago. And we set up this core idea of actually, we really do want to be manufacturing in the UK and quickly realized it was going to cost a lot more than getting that outsourced abroad. But we're happy to absorb that or build it into our product cost because that was a key part of our brand. And we need this facility to be able to do that. We're over two different facilities, one where we do the assembly and one we do our machining. Five years ago, we thought, actually, let's build the single place, Bramall Manufacturing Technology Center, otherwise known as the Wing, where you as a consumer and us as running a business, you can have the machining of the metal, the assembly of the watches, retail space, all under one site and admin. We can come in and feel what it takes to build a watch. Yeah, we always say there's 86,400 seconds in a day and a mechanical watch coming out of our facility is probably within four or five seconds accurate. That's a hell of an investment to get that working. And when you come and see that and what goes into it, suddenly you appreciate why a mechanical watch costs that amount of money. Just on that point, because for listeners that don't know, they are very high-end watches that cost a lot of money. And to some people, they will seem completely out of reach and so on. But you have a powerful video on the website about heirlooms and so on. It would be amazing to hear you talk about the kind of importance that you ascribe to that. And the fact is, it's more than a watch, right, that people are buying. Oh, it is. And, you know, our, our watches start in, you know, just under 3,000 and go all the way up. Yes, that seems like a lot of money and it is a lot of money. But, you know, I'm talking to you from a an iPhone that's probably almost a thousand pounds that will be chucked away in two or three years, whereas that watch will last forever. And it is handed on. It's proper old school cogs and gears technology. And 
yes, we can all tell the time on our phone these days, but a watch is more than telling time. It's a piece of jewelry. It's a statement of who you are. It's an, an asset that you have. Yes, you lose 20% that as soon as you walk out the door, but over the years, it will generally hold its value pretty well to be able to be used forever. So it is a craft. It is a luxury, but we're not making you know, many of them a year. That whole manufacturing piece of being made in the UK, and this is, you know, and I know from your history in politics and working for the government, Jimmy, is that building something in the UK is very expensive. If you're going to get that made abroad where far cheaper labor, far cheaper property costs, all that level, you're having to make a commitment to get something built in the UK. Now, we can do it. And I think with the right investment in infrastructure, you can bring down the people element of it to make it cheaper. But it's not easy getting anything made in the UK. It's not. And you can actually book tours of the wing, can't you? Because it's a very special building that you've created there. You must be very proud of it. Because like you say, you're adding to the the manufacturing tapestry of the United Kingdom. Oh, yeah. Um, look, yeah, book it to all, the, all this £25, all that money goes straight to charity. And you can come and see it for your own eyes. And it's lovely to show people around. And you hold a, a screw from a movement. You go, how on earth does anyone actually screw that in? It's so small. You definitely appreciate it. And what jobs have you hired for in the last year? So you've got the expansion plans coming and the site has been open about six months now. What jobs have you hired for in the last couple of years that when you set out in 2002, you couldn't have possibly dreamed of hiring for? I think the hardcore engineers, the level. So to make a case, let's say on a machine, you're physically designing it. So Nick and I will, my brother, myself, we draw what we want that case to look like. You then have a graphic designer mock that all up and do all the 3D renderings. You then need a technical engineer to make technical drawings from that case. You then need a technical programmer who can program the machine to build that case. So that is just one item you're talking about. The investment in hardcore technicians who can run these processes and design skills and also the production cycles on that component is, you know, we're right up there with the car industry, other industries, and we're trying to be best of breed. But taking people who have never built a watch before, because if I was in Switzerland, I'd put it out in a paper and I'd get 10 people who've done that job for the last 20 years applying. We have to go to automotive, aerospace, arms industries and recruit people and say, look, you've never built a watch before, but we reckon we can train that side of you, but use your skill set. So I think the investment in that part of the business has had to really go for it there and hope that the payback comes because it doesn't come straight away. You've got to grow your market share at the same time as growing your skill set on an engineering because we wake up every morning, you know, should I be placing more ads in magazines or sponsoring celebrities or is it about investing in new machines and skill set there? So how do you find those people that you potential talent almost that you talk about there how do you find those people and what's changed in that process as well we've talked so much about how the entrepreneurial business landscape has changed in the last 20 years what did you do to find your first people and how does that compare to what you do now 
Yeah, I think as an entrepreneur in the early days, you stumble across people who like the small entrepreneurial business that you are, and they're attracted to it. And they can be really influential in terms of you as a business and how you grow. Now, many people can't work for small entrepreneurial businesses. They like the bigger structure. So you've got to find those right people. Inevitably, you push them. You're challenging them because they've only worked in you know a, a particular subset of the business. Whereas small entrepreneurial companies, everyone has to get their hands dirty. You find that they grow, they do a brilliant job, and then the business sort of outgrows them if you're not careful. And then you have to make some ruthless choices or move them into different departments as you grow, or can they grow with you as a business? And I think employing people is the most difficult part of any business. Finding really good people. You have great people who interview very well, but actually when you get them on board, they're terrible. But you don't know for maybe a year that they are terrible because they're very good at covering themselves up. That is so difficult. And I think probably that's something we could have always done better at. But when you get those good people, they stay around and really transform your business in every different department. And so how many people are you at the moment? And what do you think the scale is that you could get to? We're probably 130, 150 people at the moment. So still relatively small. We were catching up beforehand, just that doesn't make headlines because it's taken... 20 years to get there but that's a lot of people and a lot of livelihoods and a lot of families which you've helped support right you do actually feel that responsibility especially in time of covid when we've all been through this nightmare scenario of suddenly all our shops are shut and we're not an online business and you do feel that responsibility and people come around our new building and say oh you doesn't it you must be so proud and everything but that's sort of not the way an entrepreneur works he's got to that point and he's always looking for the next headland to go around and the next pinnacle because we are still small in watch terms it's a big market out there and we're still not known around the world we still can do a better job and grow and we're ambitious so we should be much much bigger and what that means by being bigger is i can invest more in manufacturing in the uk and that really is a massive part of our goal and that's really what gives nick and i the kick is building more and not just building it for building sake but building it competitively and well and better and the bigger you grow the more you can invest in all of that it is a challenge while our growing a brand abroad sounds easy but it really is not you need the whole infrastructure so we're just about to launch a store in china we've spent the last six months doing data research in china what actually makes a brand tick a british brand work in and especially bremont in china and it's a completely different mindset to what you originally thought and you have to change who you are as a brand to an extent without losing your dna all of those elements it's more challenges that come your way Has the government been helpful in that? I mean, we'll come on to what the government can do more towards the end, perhaps. But have they been helpful with acting as a launch pad for going to China? Because it's right, as a you know, you are a modern day exporter, it can be very difficult to understand different cultures, particularly business cultures as well, even is a whole nother layer of complication. It is. If you go to China and ask their help through the local embassy and the the trade team, they will help. There's no doubt about that. And I think it's a very good resource for any company to go and reach out. 
I think the challenge with the government is where we've always really needed support is in investment in skills and machinery and all of that. Yeah, we're, we're just such small fry. And I think you, know, you said we spoke earlier about this growth in lots of small businesses are taking up when a big company makes 2,000 people redundant. And the government can't really work to help all those little small businesses. It's very challenging for them. So I don't look at it and think, well, they should be doing a lot more. It's not an easy game. I do think if we look at German industry, why have they done so well over the years? Is because a lot of small companies have always Always had easy access to funding when it comes to manufacturing. We have not in the UK. So to, to get that funding is very difficult. I was going to ask about that because you know you took the big decision and like we said back then it was you know, finish job on Friday, start business on Monday. It was more difficult to scale and do it as a, as a side project and so forth. How did you fund the business? Did you bootstrap it or did you have other means? We literally bootstrapped it and mortgaged our houses and put that money in. And it got to the point where we were ready. So those five years we funded, we got to the point of launch and ran out of money and we had to go and find investors. Now we got the business in quite a good shape, it, you know, ready for launch. We've got the product, everything was there. So we managed to find investors. But you know, it's painful to give away a chunk of your equity before you even sold a single watch. But it's a very capital intensive business. But I do think that if you get the right investors on board, they can really help you grow that business and give you that support that you just need. As an entrepreneur, it's a very lonely space. I think you can get a lot of support through non-exec individuals who will be there to help and not want much from it. And I think there are a lot of great guys out there to go and speak to. And my advice, you can talk to someone like me or someone else who's done it before and in probably 10 minutes, save about 30 pitfalls that you'd fall in. And so I think listening and getting advice as an entrepreneur is invaluable. And, and having just someone who you can call up when you're in a bit of bother and who I sack this person who's done X, Y, and Z, even that type of call. So I think having a network around you is very helpful. So how did you build that network around you? Because like you said, it's helpful to have people that are entrepreneurs in the same sector and so forth. And you didn't, as you said, you were one of the first startups in the watch space. So how did you build that network of like-minded people? You go out there and traipse around and meet people. What was very handy, we joined a, an organization called the Warpole Group. And the Warpole Group is a British luxury brand organization. They were actually really helpful because they had a network, that open number of doors. And I think that's always very good for any entrepreneur is to join a group. Is there a trade body? Is there somewhere out there where you can go meet and discuss and get business from? So I think you need to get out there. But that's also a challenge and because you're doing a day job, which is making, shipping, packing, answering the phone, all of that. And in the evenings, you're having to go out and smooth and build connections. And I think this is back to this. You've got to really enjoy it. It's a 24-7 job to make it work, I think. And you know, but, but that really helps. Completely agree. And yeah, the Walpole Group does a, a lot of good work. In terms of, I know you have very close associations and links with the military, and you produce a lot of watches with that in mind. And I'd love just for you to expand a bit on that, because we have a lot of people who listen from the military, actually, partly because they might be thinking about what they're going to do post-military life and so on. 
I would love to kind of hear about your relationships with that and where that stemmed from. Yes. Originally, we were working with Martin Baker, who makes 75% of the Western World's injection seats, amazing British company. And we did a watch with them that we spent two years testing, live ejection testing. And we redesigned how a watch works on the back of it. And after we did that, we started getting calls. And our first one was the U-2 spy plane squadron in the US. And they said, look, if you can certify this watch to work at 80,000 feet at minus 40, we'll take it on. And we did. And we realized, actually, the military community were massive watch lovers. If you're flying a U-2 or an F-16 or something for seven years of your life, you spend the rest of your life talking about it. And that watch is your badge of honor that you flew that plane or were in that military unit. And then we started to do a lot with the Army, Navy, um, different sectors. And it's been something we're incredibly proud of. And obviously, my background, I was sponsored through university by the RAF. My father's ex-RAF. We knew the military world. And we didn't want you know, a model standing in front of a plane pretending you're an aviation company, a watch manufacturer. And we felt that it was the best test bed of your watches properly being tested, being used by these amazing people doing amazing work. And we're massive advocates of the military. They keep us safe. They work hard. They invest in industry. And we're proud to have our armed forces covenant. We do our bit to try and support them where we can. And I think it's been a wonderful relationship and part of our brand around the world. You make watches for the Marines or the US Navy. It all is very good marketing and branding, but also real people wearing your watches. It's amazing the job the British military do. And it's, yeah, in the introduction, I was talking about the Prime Minister's time being measured in minutes and dividing meetings up into seven, nine minute sections. But as you say, the military is actually even more sort of dependent on time and needs even more accuracy when it comes to these things, because it is literally a matter of life and death. Having worked in number 10 and seen some of the things that our security services and military do, if you practice gratuity journals and so on, if I'm ever short of of something, I always think of the military and what the security services do, because it's quite amazing, really. But it's great to hear about those connections. I mean, talk to me more about that 80,000 feet minus 40. I mean, that must have been incredible. How did you do that? That's exactly my question is how do we do this when they came? And actually, that's when we went back to Martin Baker and they have those facilities. Amazing what they can test and their ejection seats. You think about when that handle is pulled, it has to work. And the testing they put it through is unlike I've ever seen anything else. They just are a brilliant, brilliant engineering business. Yeah, so they they helped us with that. And I think yeah, I definitely echo in, in the military, the stuff they do and their training. And it's something we should be really proud of in the UK. Not only the history, but what they've done and how many other militaries around the world get sent to train with the British military is so impressive. And it does a lot for industry. Our aerospace and arms industry wouldn't be there without our British military as well. Yeah, I could talk about this for, for ages. Yeah, right, in the sense of, you know, we often think of military as the hardest form of power that we have. But as you allude to that, there's actually enormous soft power that comes with it as well in terms of that influential side of things. And so coming on to the government, we're asking everyone that comes on the show, the government talks a lot about building back better, levelling up. And those are slogans that have certainly cut through and people understand. But the actual practicalities of how governments can do that is a complicated issue. As an entrepreneur who's been working for 20 years on this, you'll have seen the good and the bad. 
And we just want to know what you think the government can do to achieve those aims and what it can do. So it'd be great to get your thoughts on that. It's a really difficult question, isn't it? The government has a lack of money. It can't, especially in the environment we have, they can't just hand out money. That is a real challenge. I think the whole Brexit negotiations on trade deals around the world can help export businesses. I think when it comes to red tape and employing individuals or support for apprenticeship schemes. But I think as a government, you've got to make it very clear as to this is your focus on where you want businesses to grow. And I think partly because we're a luxury brand making expensive watches, actually governments have slightly shied away from us because it's the wrong perception, even though we're manufacturing in the UK in an odd way. I don't think there's a clear go at all of this. I think COVID debts have suddenly debted up a lot of companies. Will that be taken on by the equity markets? Probably. It curves around. I think it's hanging that your hat on where is Britain going to be in 5, 10, 20 years? So is it battery technology? Is it pharmaceuticals? Is it specialised manufacturing? And if we all knew that on a long-term approach, you could properly build up those skills and investments in those sectors. And I think if as government, I just make that very clear and you'll upset some people who go, well, where's the support for my industry? But you'll spurn so much new investment and job creation and be the best at certain things because you can't be great at everything. You know, we've seen with genome sequencing and all the stuff around COVID, our actual skills there that actually probably people had no idea we had them. Does the rest of the world really know that? What? How can we capitalize off that? I was running a business saying, where are those skills and how can I really push that forward? And the trade negotiations, it's got to be equal trade, doesn't it, around the world? So, you know, if we are a net importer from China, well, what are China going to give us going back? That has to be the basic principles of trade and building that up. And if the government can help support businesses like ours in their trade negotiations in China, then fantastic, we win from them. Yeah, and I think your point about where Britain is in the next 5, 10, 15 years is really interesting because every 30 or 40 years, there is a big shift in British politics and the British state, the foundation of the Labour Party in the 1920s, Clement Attlee government in the 1940s, Margaret Thatcher in the 70s, 80s. It is kind of about that moment again. I mean, I thought we'd be at it post-Brexit in of itself, actually, but when you add coronavirus into the mix as well, it is a kind of crossroads moment and that gets talked about a lot, but it really does feel like that and it's difficult to know where we end up as a result of it which is partly what makes it so interesting but you do take on quite a number of apprentices don't you we do yeah and all the training investment that goes into that support for apprentices is pretty tiny actually and i think the government could really push that but once again which sectors do they really want to invest in to get that growth because there is a lack of skill set out there and if you don't have the skills then you get inflationary wages and you get this sort of divide which isn't good you've got to sort of get over that don't you absolutely and so one of the final questions is is there a book that has particularly inspired you on your entrepreneurial journey or even just a book more recently that you've read that you found particularly interesting and insightful? I love reading some business stories. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's- because it's all sort of inspiration. I love Shoe Dog, which is the uh, founder of Nike, and his journey is an amazing journey. If no one's read that, really recommend that. I love 
listening to adventure stories. Sir Francis Chipster on his flight to Australia, one of the first people to fly an old gypsy moth down there. It's that mindset of an adventurer is very much in a mindset of an entrepreneur. It's getting over these hurdles and being knocked down and picking yourself up and going through that. And I think you've got to look for inspiration. And I think listening to podcasts, all of that helps because you can pick up little nuggets, but it's very easy not to be inspired and you need to keep inspiring yourself. So reading these biographies or listening to people talk about it, I think are brilliant. Yeah, I think the modern day entrepreneur being a modern day explorer is a very apt thing actually and there's a lot of similarities about setting sail not knowing quite where you're going but just knowing the general travel and direction and working it out with all the weather that comes your way as well can be quite challenging and the final question i had was how many watches do you own and what's your favorite watch <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a bit of a busman's holiday to kind of ask well, you that you know, it's, a, it's a bit like saying which is your favorite child um, <laughs> yes. yeah, one day one really annoys you and the next day the other one you love I've got quite a few watches and I think we come up with these amazing limited editions. So every year we come up with a new limited edition that raises a whole chunk of money for charity and it tells a story. And our most recent one is all around Stephen Hawking, working with the Stephen Hawking Foundation. And it created this beautiful watch with wood from Stephen's desk, meteorite paper from one of his theses, but in this very classic, quite fun watch. Those limited editions, Nick and I always keep one and they are very special and they become total passion projects and anything working with the Admiralty, with HMS Victory to Bletchley Park to Wright Flyer, Amanda Wright, parts of the first plane that ever flew built into a watch. They are wonderful pieces that we do a lot for charity in the process. So I'd recommend anyone to log in and have a look at some of those because they really are works of art. I've spent a lot of time researching <laughs> this <laughs> podcast interview um, to do that. Which charities do you sort of support, by the way? It's great to give them a name check. At the moment, when you come for a tour with the John Egan Trust, which is a trust set up by the wife of a late Red Arrows pilot, and it's all about disadvantaged children. It's just an inspirational charity helping kids who've literally got nothing in their lives. That's been a big one. And then these individual big charitable projects and obviously armed forces were part of their charitable status. So we try and raise funds for anything they're doing. But we get lots of approaches from charities and we work with a lot. We can't do everyone, which is a real shame because we'd love to. But I think, yeah, giving something back to these different people is very important. I think every business should do it. Absolutely. I totally agree. Look, Giles, it's been brilliant to have you on and I hope we can do this in person at some yeah. point because I do think what you're building is really inspiring and it's part of the changing nature of our economy that we should be really proud of. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for getting me on the show. I'm sure you've had far more interesting and eloquent people on rather than me. But if, yeah, if, not at all. If you, if you want to organize yeah, a, a group of viewers and yourself to come around the wing, we're more than happy to arrange that. But, uh, oh, yeah, no, I'm sure we'd love to do that at some stage. Definitely. That sounds great. I really appreciate it. Thank you for getting me on. Brilliant. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The mission of this podcast is to help inform people about the fantastic jobs that are being created and trying to present that information in an as accessible format as possible. I'd therefore really appreciate it if you could send this episode to someone who you think might find it useful and interesting. It doesn't have to be just for them, 
It could be that they work at a school, college, or just interested in the future of our economy. If you could rate us on iTunes, that would be great. And of course, we are on social media platforms at Jimmy's Jobs. We are particularly trying to grow it on LinkedIn. Thanks to the team at Particle 6 for their editing skills. And thanks to George Dick Cleland for the artwork. 